Okay, hello there, everyone, and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today is... Tim Phillips. And uh, Tim is coming to us live from his house, I assume. (laughs) Tim Central, right? Yeah, it's uh, the Tim Universe. (laughs) The Tim Tim Cinematic Cinematic Universe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wait till everyone sees the mid-credits stinger at the end of this yeah this is great it's all it's all cliffhanger you're part of it though adam you're one of the superheroes yeah when i'm when do i get my solo movie uh, it's been shelved oh okay that's that makes sense that's probably for the best yeah i can't use COVID as an excuse anymore but i i will i'll say it's because of COVID. <laughs> it's over budget <laughs> no one can agree on the script yeah. the directors walked away yeah uh we're off to a great start all right we are and, yeah <laughs> and credits is a local movie show for local movie fans we're here every wednesday at 3 p.m to talk about the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies which this week will be the new historical epic drama napoleon which you can now see in a theater near you. Uh, some of us saw it in 70 millimeter. Ooh la la. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, fancy. Fancy schmancy on film. Yeah. Um, well, spoiler alert. Uh, that's in the back half of the show. For the first half, we're going to uh, look ahead a bit. Uh, we're going to air here on November the 29th at about uh, 3 3 p.m. And uh, so, you know, we're looking ahead to uh, the next month, which starts in a couple days, and that's December, and that's the end of the year. And if it's the end of the year, that means we're getting close to our end of the year show, which is going to be, as always, uh, everyone, the whole gang, going to come in and do their top five of the year. And we've been doing this kind of custom the last couple of years. Last year, Peter and I did it. um, But since it's Tim's turn uh, right now, we're going to talk about some of the movies that we want to make sure that we see before we make that top five list for the year at the end of the year so uh i don't know about tim but i mean this is um i mean it's a stressful time of year generally speaking it Um, is yeah also with my day job because this you know the (laughs) every because it's politics and politicians they save everything till the end of the year to finish um so that's uh in in my day job but i mean in this like my um my fun job uh watching movies it's always stressful because uh they release a lot of good movies at the end of the year plus you're trying to catch up on stuff that you might have missed through the course of the year yeah so um yeah it's just stressful all around it is yeah (laughs) when we're, we're trying to trying to see movies carve out that time and so many movies these days are like two and a half, three hours. So you're mm-hmm. carving out that time as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they do they do hold it till the end of the year, and sometimes even past when we do our show. So, mm-hmm. so. yeah, uh, yeah, because sometimes they release stuff in like Toronto and New York and LA, so it's awards eligible, but then it doesn't come out till January, or February, which I hate, um, especially since I don't get to Toronto as often as I used to, but. Um, Oh, what a what a world! Um, also, I want to point out, like, in, like in terms of movie lengths, Napoleon and the most recent Hunger Games movie are both exactly the same length. 
There you go. Put that put that in your hat and stuff. It it's you know <laughs> we we associate Ridley Scott with these like epic like mass scale like historical reenactments and then the Hunger Games. It's like well we need two and two hours and forty minutes to tell this important story about how a country based its whole economic system on kids killing each other. Yeah. Yeah, a Great lot stuff. of these films are getting pretty excessive. and But then uh, Ridley Scott has a four-hour, ten-minute director's cut he wants to release. So mm-hmm. Can't wait for that. <laughs> um, all right. Napoleon's coming up. So for right now, we're going to talk about other movies. Uh, so, Tim, what's on your list to see before the end of the year? First pick. Yeah, thanks, Adam. So honorable, honorable mention is The Holdovers. <laughs> so Adam and I just off air before we came on talked about the holdovers. I haven't seen it yet. And actually uh, I didn't see the forest for the trees. Cause I know that's one that's been on my list, but um, I went with some films that maybe aren't as high a profile. Actually mm-hmm. some of them are. So there's mm. uh, my first uh, film on that. I'd like to see before the end of the year. And it's been out a fair bit. And I just haven't had a chance to see it is anatomy of a fall. Ah, yes. Uh, by directed by Justine Trier, and I just I had heard about it. it won the Palme d'Or in France, um, and I think it was a little bit of a controversial pick um, because a lot of people said it was like a thriller, Hitchcockian mm-hmm. thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, maybe some people are more in the artsy crowd weren't <laughs> as you know wanted something you know. Often, you know, <laughs> films you can't understand do well at uh, the Cannes Film Festival. But I saw the trailer for this just the other day, and now I really want to see it. It looks so riveting. Um, it's described as a courtroom drama thriller. Um, but gi- given what I saw in the trailer, it's uh, uh, a, a woman's husband has, like, fallen to his death. Mm-hmm. And um, he's lying dead blood flowing from his head and um the wife played by sandra hewler who looks like, like she's gonna have a big year this year she mm-hmm. also was in tony erdman about six years ago mm-hmm. um she uh she's accused because she's the wife right so it's like um often the spouse is the first person accused um so from what i'm getting from it is you can't really tell if she's innocent or guilty it's a real mystery throughout the film um and she plays a writer and she's trying to prove her innocence in her husband's death um just the trailer though it was so captivating it it just seemed to be it's it's like one of these films where there's so much action but so much action in the dialogue i'm getting a sense of that really mm-hmm. makes you think um, I love Hitchcock, so Hitchcockian uh, perks up my ears as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, yeah, and it, it's, uh, d- has done really well at the French box office. It actually came out in August mm-hmm. and it was number two in its opening weekend after Barbie. And <laughs> be- it was before it was Oppenheimer is number three on the box office list so it uh it's really uh caught a lot of attention in france so i'd i'd love to see it might be tough to see it i think there might have been an opportunity before but now i'm going to just try to 
find somewhere that's it's, showing it. Yeah, it's it's working its way through the art house circuit. Yeah. Um, interesting about France that they had more of a barbonomy of a fall as opposed to Barbenheimer. Yeah, yeah, they like <laughs> they like their their Barbie, but this that would have been a month after I think Barbie mm. and Oppenheimer were released. So um, okay, Oppenheimer was still number three in the box office, but Anatomy of a Fall to be number two, and that shows you know there is. A, a popular audience for it as well as a critical audience. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the director Justine Triate, she didn't do herself any any favors politically. Um, mm. She uh, gave a speech at the Cannes Film Festival where she uh, criticized uh, President Macron, mm. and uh, so now, um, although. From what I've heard, it should be nominated for Best Foreign Language Picture at the Oscars. It is not going to be nominated. Mm. Um, instead, The Pot of Fu mm-hmm. is going to be uh, nominated. And looking at the poster of it, um, <laughs> I don't know. It's got, gotten rave reviews, but looking at the poster, it looks like a French Hallmark movie to me, almost. And it stars uh, Juliette Binoche. Mm-hmm. And it's bringing back some bad vibes to me about Chocolat from back in the day. Ah, um, yes. One of the most overrated films of all time, I think, Chocolat. So, yeah, I think they went with a safe choice here, given the political controversy. It's too bad they take that into account when picking their uh, films they're going to present to the Academy. Um, yeah. But it uh, uh, it looks like a really compelling thriller. Don't want mm. to learn too much more about it. I'm mm. um, trying to avoid plot summaries or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Sandra Huller looks like she's going to have a big year in film. Um, probably, as you said, all the films are released at the end of the year, early next year. So we'll probably be hearing more about her mm. and nominations and acclaim as the year goes on. And, uh, uh yeah, no, it's a solid pick. It was probably one of my honorable mentions. Um, I'm going to move on to my first pick, though, which uh, has a holdovers tie-in, sort of. Um, it's called American Fiction, also award-winning. Yeah. It was the People's Choice Award for uh, at, the, at the TIFF International Film Festival, which is usually a pretty good predictor about what's going to be Oscar-worthy. Uh, it stars Jeffrey Wright as uh, an author who has uh, had a lot of difficulty trying to sell his books, the, the appearances that uh, his books are, to borrow a phrase, a little too hoity-toity for the popular fiction crowd. Um, so he writes a book um, about the Black experience, and Black experiences in quote marks, because he leans pretty heavily on some pretty outrageous stereotypes about uh, what it is to be Black in America. And much to his shock and uh, appall, it is a massive, massive success. So he has created a a fake book based on fake experiences from a fake author, um, which is sort of this like black stereotype version of himself. Instead of being a Ivy League educated uh, English lit proficient author, he's now this you know person who's been in prison um, for <laughs> unknown but presumably uh, very serious, violent, uh, likely drug related charges. Um, it's a bit like that guy who wrote the book. I can't remember the the guy that Oprah, the Oprah's book club, hooked up. And um, anyway, the name will come to me. 
but it, it seems a little bit like that. I'm also reminded a bit of Spike Lee's Bamboozled, which is um, about essentially a BET network where uh, the programmer uh, stages a, uh, a a new version of a minstrel show and it becomes a massive success. It's, it's kind of like this kind of producer's uh, vibe to it as well. Um, but the Holdovers Connection, uh, Jeffrey Wright is the star, as I mentioned. Uh, Jeffrey Wright, like Paul Giamatti, has never is like a solid actor. Like when you want a solid actor, you you call Paul Giamatti or you call Jeffrey Wright, and they come in and they like they will they will take that script even if it's a D script they'll bring it up to a C. They'll take a C and bring it up to a B. But they have not been given you know some due consideration at the Oscars. At least Paul Giamatti has a Oscar nomination. Guess how many Oscar nominations Jeffrey Wright has? Zero. Correct. <laughs> and was Paul Giamatti, was that for Cinderella Man? That is also correct. So he wasn't nominated for Sideways. Was no, he was not. Or any of the other like numerous performances that yeah. Peter and I mentioned last week. <laughs> yeah. But, Cinderella Man, too, he's really over the top in that. Um, yeah. I like it, but it's yeah. he's, had, he's had better roles than that. That's unfortunate. I, yeah. I would agree. Uh, yeah. Jerry Heller is one of the ones that both Tim and I mentioned and straight out of Compton comes to mind but um, Jeffrey Wright is someone who I think is past due for like similar consideration uh, American fiction seems to be uh, a, a, just from watching the trailer seems to be a pretty good indication and you know stellar cast because you get Issa Rae in there you get uh, John Ortiz um, Tracy Ellis Ross uh, Sterling K. Brown. So, I mean, this is a stacked cast, one way or the other. So, you're giving Jeffrey Wright some really good support. Hopefully, that translates into some recognition from the awards. Uh, I guess we'll find out when the movie comes out on uh, in the middle of December. So, this may be like an under the wire thing for me. So, but uh, I'll be very interested in seeing it. I'm very interested in seeing it too. Now that you remind me, yeah, it's on my honorable mention. <laughs> it's another one for the honorable mention. I do no, because I, I read about that, and I like I read an interview with the uh, director as well, and it was very interesting. He said he's interested in the gray areas too, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, which I like. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, not, nobody's perfect. Everybody ha has their problems, so let's look at those gray areas as opposed mm -hmm. to um, just making something that's just a political piece you know let's look at the hum human nature i like stuff like that so mm -hmm. well yeah. uh what do you have for your number two my number two falls into that actually okay. um and it, it might be tough to see but it's called the zone of interest uh, yes. by jonathan glazer um i really want to see it um it might be tough before our show i see like one screening <laughs> um sunday december 10th as part of the toronto jewish film festival oh well, there toronto. you go um it's a good promo for them yeah <laughs> um and it also stars the german actor sandra Kuhler, who i mentioned from anatomy of a fall mm -hmm. um uh her and her husband uh rudolf haas if i'm saying that right mm. um he is he he runs the auschwitz uh concentration camp and they have taken over from what I understand of the film. They've sort of taken over some fancy homes from some of the Jewish people who are in the camp mm -hmm. and they're living their dream life 
just, you know, just next door to where the camp is basically. Mm -hmm. And I think this shows like, from what I understand, it shows sort of like, you know, just the everyday mundane nature of evil and of complicity um, to evil. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jonathan Glazer, who directs some really interesting work, his last film was Under the Skin Mm -hmm. with Scarlett Johansson. Mm -hmm. Um, He, uh, after that, he went and he visited concentration camps, including Auschwitz, and he was, uh, it caught his eye to learn more about the leader of the Auschwitz camp and how he lived this life of luxury in a home nearby. And it led him to think about, you know, what their lives were like, what, you know, what were they, you know, what, what, what were they doing while all these people suffered? And, and the thing is, once again, there's like gray areas to it because there was so much complicity during, during that war and in Germany. And I think of like, I wear Puma sneakers and it was like, Mm. there's a nazi history to that company you know yeah um so if you look at anything any of these comp adidas was the same any of these companies could be canceled but that's it, it just it was like you know how how these people were complicit in 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 su- in such evil so mm. i'm interested in seeing that and given some of the uh reviews i it, you know it's probably a tough movie to love given its subject matter but some people are saying um it talks about important truths it doesn't sugarcoat anything um it just you know it doesn't have any sort of sentimental moments necessarily or anything like that it's just sort of here's the cold harsh truth um about human nature and what happened during that time and mm-hmm. I think that's a brave thing to do and something I'm interested in seeing. It's mm-hmm. based on a Martin Amos novel, a famous British writer. Um, I'd read his book Money, which was I liked it. I didn't love, but I'm not too familiar with his work. But um, apparently Jonathan Glazer took that premise and then he took it a step further. Because in the book, there were a lot. Of, they're all fictional characters, mm. but he made it the real characters from from the history that he studied over the last couple of years mm. um so it's it's probably going to be a tough watch but yeah. i think it's really those gray areas of like humanity that i think will be interesting to see this and see see how he uh how jonathan glazier put it together in this film and sandra Huler, you know two really interesting films it looks like i haven't seen them yet so we'll have to see but um anatomy of a fall and then the the zone of interest so i'm interested in seeing both of them and it might be a big year for her yeah hopefully it makes me think of like scarlett johansson when she was in marriage story and uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> jojo rabbit or sally hawkins and maudie and shape of water so might be a big big year sort of under the radar now but maybe in a few months we'll be talking about sandra Huler a little bit more yeah that's a good pick uh I, I kind of left it off because I kind of I'm not entirely sure what I might be able to see it. I mean, I hope to see it before the end of the year, but 
Uh, it might be one of those things where we kind of have to wait. Uh, for my number two, I, I do know we're going to see this before the end of the year because um, it's coming to Netflix. It's called Maestro. It is Bradley Cooper's follow-up to A Star is Born. And I, I mean, like, talk about talent behind the scenes. You have producers Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. Um, you have Carrie uh, Mulligan playing Mrs. Bernstein in it, along with uh, co-starring roles for Matt Bomer and uh, Sarah Silverman, Maya Hawke as well. Uh, screenplay by Josh Singer, who has like kind of as a screenwriter, kind of like his only written bangers: The Fifth Estate, Spotlight, The The Post, First Man. So like all of these kind of like biopics that are like really solid, really interesting, really kind of dug into the the. I mean, Spotlight's not really a biopic, but it's about real people. But um, digs into like the goings on behind the scenes. Um, presents real people in a really compelling way. My point of interest here is like, why are all these people like really interested in the life of Leonard Bernstein? It, <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> I, I mean, he's he was an accomplished composer, and uh, you know, yeah. he and and all of that. But I mean, um, it, it just feels like he, he, is there a lot of secret Leonard Bernstein stands in the? I culture? think there is. I think there might be. Um, I'm yeah. I. I, I'm not, but I think there are a lot of people. <laughs> not to be snarky, but there are a lot of people I think who are big fans of his. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting getting this like a couple of years after that big West Side Story revival that Spielberg did, and Bernstein wrote the music for West Side Story. Um, Stephen Sondheim wrote the lyrics, of course. Um, so I, I guess that's maybe like part of it, but I, I I just find it fascinating. Like, what has drawn like this immaculate collection of talent together for the Leonard Bernstein story. And of course, like there's a story to like, like Bradley Cooper spent six years learning how to conduct an orchestra for mm -hmm. like one small scene in the film, which is like, that's like insano, um, like Robert De Niro levels of dedication and, and the, the terms of like art of the, the, the method, it, it's really quite something. So, um, I'll be very interested to see Maestro. I wish I could have saw it the big screen, uh, but uh, the the small screen will have to suffice. But I'll be interested to see it and see what else Bradley Cooper can do. Yeah, and in Tar, that was her uh, mentor, right? Was Leonard Bernstein? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so there's another. There's another Bern. Everybody's Bernstein crazy except us. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we will be by the end of the year. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. All right. Let's get to your number three. <laughs> Number three is a movie that just sort of popped up on my radar in the last couple of days. Um, mm. It's called Dream Scenario mm -hmm. by Christopher Borgley, who's a Norwegian director. Great name. Um, yeah, and he, uh, uh, it's in the tradition, it looks like in a tradition of Scandinavian black comedies that sort of take on popular society, American society. Um, think of like Triangle of Sadness. Uh, and also uh, just human nature once again. I think, yeah, Triangle of Sadness, Worst Person in the World, Force Majeure. I, I, those films really strike a chord with me. Um, mm -hmm. And Christopher Borgley, he directed last year, so I'll have to see it on streaming, Sick of Myself. Mm -hmm. um, I, it was on my list and I never sat down to watch it, so I'm interested. Apparently it pulls no punches, sort of a nasty satire. Uh, this film uh, may be lighter, 
given the premise, but I think it's more, it's a satire on society, social media, um, viral videos, all that kind of stuff. It, um, and it's directed by Ari Aster, of mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. who, um, Hereditary and Bo is Afraid and Midsommar. Um, <laughs> so he's got his hands on this, which is a black comedy. I saw it also described as, I think, somewhat of a horror, but I don't think it's much of a horror. Um, it stars Nicolas Cage. And he plays this sort of um, average sort of biology professor mm-hmm. um, who he ends up uh, in people's dreams. Uh, just the, He just ends up as a character in people's dreams. So from what I've read, and I don't want to get too far into the plot, but what I've read is he it starts out with him, people around him saying, hey, you were in my dream last night. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, really? Okay. And then he <laughs> finds out I think his daughter posts something on Facebook and he finds out that he's like in everybody's dream mm-hmm. and he's just the sort of boring character, I guess, in their dreams. Um, and uh, he, uh, so then he becomes famous without wanting to be famous. Right. Um, he goes viral without wanting to go viral. And uh, I'm interested with the cast as well. Um, Julianne Nicholson plays his wife. Michael Sarah is the head of a viral marketing firm. Mm-hmm. And Tim Meadows, who always gives me a good laugh, um, <laughs> formerly of Saturday Night Live, and he's been in a lot of a lot of great supporting roles. Um, I think he was he was in Mean Girls, I think, right? Um, yeah. He's been in a lot of and and he will be again. <laughs> yeah, in Mean Girls too. He plays the dean of uh, Paul Matthews College. So Nicolas Cage plays Paul Matthews. And Nicolas Cage is getting really great reviews for this. Um, when he's at his best, he's one of my favorites to watch. I really like adaptation and stuff like that. So if this is of that ilk, I'm really interested in seeing it. Just heard about it a couple days ago, but it's I think it's starting to play at select theaters. So mm-hmm. looking forward to seeing Dream Scenario. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm interested in that one too. Um, but for number three on my list, uh, I chose something that came out months ago. Uh, just hasn't, you know, haven't had a chance to see it. Didn't come up uh, as a subject for the show. I mean, we can only do 50 movies a year, uh, do deep dives, but um, it's Past Lives, which is this sort of touching, romantic, sort of romantic uh, drama about these two people they they grew up together i think in korea if i remember correctly and um you know they she and her family immigrated to north america he was left behind in korea uh they grow apart um but then they come back together 12 years later um when when they're kind of both in the same place um very very briefly and they have this reconnection and then they grow apart again for 12 years and then come back together to have this sort of uh, I guess semi perennial <laughs> ritual where they break apart and come back together and so it's it's kind of a sliding doors kind of fable it seems um, you know what might have been because uh, the the young woman in it is married and uh, to a American man and he's single and so there's this whole like well what might have been and um I don't know what happens because uh, I haven't seen it yet, but it, it does seem like it does seem like quite the 
the feels kind of movie and uh, it's not something i kind of want to put on in the background as i'm like doing dishes or whatever it's like let's let's sit down and ensconce ourselves in this touchy feely world of human connection and emotion so i mean uh, hopefully i (laughs) i can make the time just like sit down one night and just you know vibe with past <laughs> lives but uh it is definitely something i want to see it's it's kind of uh kind of embarrassing that i haven't found the time to just jibe with it yet but um i i, I plan to let's just put it that way it's on the list oh yeah and now, now that rec- list is on the radio so <laughs> <laughs> i would recommend it i mm-hmm. i saw it and spoiler alert it's it's on my list i don't think okay. anything will knock it off it was really interesting good. okay yeah. good Good. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Cue up. All right. So, uh, the countdown has begun to the last show of the year and a top five list that will be on de- December twenty seventh in this time slot. So twenty eight days away. Whew. Whew. Anyway, <laughs> um, speaking of twenty eight days, movies about that long. I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> it's not. My <laughs> butt felt it. literally an hour shorter than killers of the flower moon um but we're out we're going to review napoleon after the break you are listening to end credits here on cfru 93.3 fm cfru.ca well campus and community radio the crown of France in the gutter. I picked it up with the tip of my sword and cleaned it and placed it atop my own head. The most glorious, the most august Napoleon, emperor of the French, is crowned and enthroned. Long live the emperor! Long live the emperor! And that was a clip from Napoleon. It is the new film from Sir Ridley Scott, and it stars Joaquin Phoenix, Vanessa Kirby, Tahar Rahim, Ben Miles, Paul Reese, Matthew Needham, and Rupert Everett as the Duke of Wellington. Um... I just threw that in there because it's an interesting detail. But yeah. Um, so Napoleon, and I think we talked about this, not you and I, but I think it was Candace and I talked about um like movies made like movies about people, real like real people who had that had never been made. And it, it would be incorrect to say that there's never been a movie about Napoleon. But um 
there hasn't been like a big Hollywoody movie like this since like Waterloo in 1970, which like kind of focused exclusively on the Battle of Waterloo, which is famously the last straw for Napoleon. But like most Napoleon movies are like pre 1950s. Yeah, there's one in the 20s that was really well known. Yeah. And, and Stanley Kubrick wanted to make one for years. I think. Yeah. From like the seventies until he died, it was like on his list of movies. He wanted to make a movie about Napoleon. Yeah, and, and it's it it makes me wonder, like, because certainly, I think Ridley Scott has said Kubrick was an influence on him. You know how much of this is kind of like peak. It's like, well, Kubrick can do a Napoleon movie, but I can, and you know, Ridley Scott <laughs> seems to be. I mean, if you've been following Ridley Scott on his like press tour for this, where he's just oh. like. Everyone's like, well, what about the historical inaccuracies? Like, historic histories for nerds. That's the screenwriter's problem. <laughs> he's it's... so crusty, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, the, and the French, the French took a like a lot of the French critics took offense to it, given yeah. historical inaccuracies and showing Napoleon as sort of a buffoon, and <laughs> and he's like, he's like, screw the French or something. Yeah, I mean, meanwhile, he makes Napoleon and it premieres in France. So, yeah. Well, I was, I was like looking at you know, the background of this, like, it was mostly filmed in England, so, I mean, that's, like, another level of offense right there. It's like, we're gonna film this story about, like, the ultimate French general in England, using English locations. And English actors and, English and actors jo- Joaquin Phoenix part. in yeah. full depressive mode, doing his, his thing there. Oh, know, my goodness. All right. his... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there's so much to dig into, but yeah, it... it let, let's start with Joaquin, because I've heard it, like, kind of described as an anti-performance. Like he's just yeah. he, he's just like such a blank slate through it all. Like there's so much like you can't even tell that there's stuff going on in underneath him. Like like just from the beginning where they're like, Hey, Napoleon, like France is falling apart. Like could you like maybe go to, you know, this other area and like you know, defeat the British? And he's like, Yes, I will do this. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, it's just like he's playing himself. To, it's almost because I've seen him do acceptance speeches and stuff, and that's how he is, right? He's yeah. like, he's, I think it's, you know, probably serious. He's probably de- battling depression, but it comes across kind of funny on the screen, right? Yeah. And that's, that's, it's like him, him playing himself, which, you know, I like some actors in the past, like Jack Nicholson in like the 70s when he played himself. I was like, okay. But with Joaquin Phoenix, I I'm on like two camps with him for his performances. Some yeah. of them totally rivet me, and then the other ones I'm kind of like, yeah, what are you trying to do here <laughs> exactly? Right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's bizarre because it feels like he because it feels like Ridley Scott is making like I'm going to make the definitive Hollywood Napoleon movie, and Joaquin Phoenix is like, I'm not going to I'm not going to give the definitive Napoleon performance. Like I'm not here to like either like justify people's assumptions about Napoleon or to create a whole new persona for Napoleon and just you know I'm just going from scene to scene man I'm just <laughs> here I am going to Toulon <laughs> and here I am like staging a coup and here I am like firing cannons at you know protesters and you know yeah. now I'm going home to Vanessa Kirby to father a child and <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> and his foreplay where he acts like a horse or whatever yeah that was yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it, it, there's like there's two different movies like fighting to exist in the same space and one is this like is this like history class lesson of the rise and fall of napoleon and the other is this like bizarre psychosexual drama between napoleon and josephine where they're like 
they're at dinner and they have dinner guests and he's throwing food at her because she won't get pregnant. And it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. So it is. It is. And yeah, that's, that's what I'd liked a lot of the, the film. I really liked the battle scenes and the battle mm-hmm. scenes on the, on the ice. That was, yeah, you know, really captivating. But I think there are like at least two, if not more, movies struggling here to to get out, and mm-hmm. it, it's almost like a shift at one point. It's like it was. It's like a comedy at the start, and it's mm-hmm. almost sort of like the satire on Napoleon. Mm-hmm. And I read an article this morning. Somebody was a military expert was saying, "Yeah, Napoleon, like a lot of his career is sort of BS. He just sort of embellished a lot of things, and then people just believed it. So mm-hmm. for them." to show him as a little bit of a buffoon makes sense. But then he's shown us at the same time, such a skilled sort of uh, military strategist. Right. Mm-hmm. And it seems like those scenes are riveting where he's the battle scenes and where he's giving direction and, and he's this military strategist, but it's hard for me in my mind to, um, say that that's the same character as the buffoon that we see in the other scenes, you know, the, the, the one who's just, who's who's just sort of this cowardly sort I don't know, like just somebody who has no sense of no social skills or, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, and yeah. And I, I felt there was a fair bit of, you know, there's a fair bit of abuse towards women that was sort of added to the script too, right? Because mm. I guess he never slapped Josephine. Of course, mm. you're never going to do everything exactly right. And you're trying to fit the character and there's misogyny of the time and everything. But like, he likes when he slaps her, Josephine when she doesn't want to read uh, the statement about their annulment of their marriage. Yeah. That was fabricated. Yeah. You know, I so I think there's some things there's some misogyny in the film too which i don't think needed to be there but i think i I think you're onto something there because one of the things that struck me is there are multiple levels because vanessa kirby has this very specific kind of like i'm horny energy and she brings that to like josephine's very early scenes and you know she she she, like that, that's her in like the Mission Impossible movies, and in like that not great Hobbs and Shaw movie where she's like playing against Jason Statham, who can also play horny, but he, he's her brother in that movie. And then she, which just leads her to having to play horny against Dwayne the Rock Johnson, who's become utterly and completely sexless in this phase of his career. But <laughs> it's you know she's got that energy, but then they have these sex scenes that are completely and utterly unsexy, and it feels like. Ridley's trying to like sort of lampshade like a lot of these historical dramas, like something like the Tudors, for example, which is um kind of like pointedly like here's sexy Henry the Eighth, and you know, everything's like dimly lit and erotic and um you know, <laughs> considering Henry the Eighth was quite famously rotund and likely had diabetes. Yeah. Um so, so I mean, there's he's he's playing with that, and then the flip side with the the military strategy, 
and like the Battle of Toulon and the Battle of Austerlitz, like there's a scene in the Battle of Austerlitz where the guy comes into his tent and he says, "General, we're discovered," and Napoleon's just like sitting there quietly with his eyes closed, and he go- and he just opens them and says, "Good," and then and then he orders and he orders the the the, the the corporal to you know tell the men to just, you know get a good night's rest because they're going to be fighting in the morning, um, but then at the end you have this sort of like title card that like lists the casualties for all these major battles you just watched and it's like it just keeps yeah. going up it's like eighty thousand, a hundred twenty thousand, three hundred thousand, and you know so you're sitting there at the end and going it's like wait was he a good strategist or did he just throw so many men at a battle? That you know he he won he had these victories at like great personal cost that he just like kind of reckless like he wasn't yeah. so much a great strategist so much as he was like just had like zero emotional investment in his men. <laughs> yeah, well, and yeah, but then th- I think that's a little too late to to put that. And I also took that as is this like an anti-war statement? Like all yeah. these people died uh, futilely, and but it, it yeah that didn't. That didn't jive for me. And then, yeah, that's where it's sort of, to me, it's a little bit of mixed up film as far as the plot goes, because he's shown to be like a very capable strategist. I think yeah. like when you see those scenes, those war scenes, he's like, go here, go here. We're going to get, we're going to go from behind and it like all works out. We're going to get higher, higher ground and, and it works out for him. Yeah. The battle, so, of, uh, the siege of Toulon, um, where, where you know have these like scenes where he's like on horseback like scouting the thing himself and like looking for where all the the weaknesses are in in the english fort like that that's like it's it's clearly saying like this is guy's a thinker and he's trying to think of like the best way to take this fort with the limited amount of men and resources he has yeah and and so then at the end it's okay he uh he he wasn't that great a strategist because all these people died and a lot of sort of apologists for like what are what might be historical inaccuracies are saying well he wasn't a great strategist well then i think just commit to that Mm. you know commit to it for the whole film make it a comedy and a satire napoleon you're probably gonna piss off even more people by doing that (laughs) but you know commit you could still have great battle scenes because a lot of people are dying right you, 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 people going through through the ice you'd and these great cinematic moments still even if he's sending people to slaughter you can still have those great cinematic moments but mm-hmm. i think it's a little mixed up in in its perception and people are complicated like i said before mm. we we're talking about like gray areas and humanity so i'm well, fine with him being a very good strategist and just a mess in his personal life that's fine but it, it it's kind of i think it's mixed up in how it wants to de- depict him at his professional and personal life right so well you mentioned the four hour and 10 minute cut which makes me wonder like is that are, are those kind of the scenes that like let the story breathe a little because you know we see like i'm not i'm not saying that he didn't care about his men because and we certainly see the, you know these they're on the the road to moscow and he's handing out bread to the men as they pass and uh and then later you know when he comes back from elba and he runs into his old regiment and he's like hey guys remember me your general like you guys you guys want to kick me out again and they're like no general we love you it's like okay well that's that's nice why do they love him because he won all the time yeah i don't know it it i i don't know if ridley's 
purposely like trying to ask these questions. Um, it's like, why do why is Napoleon a fascinating figure? Because he, you know, had some successes, but uh, also he like in, in this thirty year stretch, he like he built himself up and completely tore himself down. Um, people in Europe kind of hated his guts. It's like he didn't make many friends um, in the process. <laughs> like yeah. if anyone joined up with him, it seemed to be they were because they were afraid of him. Um, and so, like, what is it that? Again, I don't know if he's Ridley's pur- purposefully asking this question, but like, what is that we like? What's it we love of Napoleon? Like, why is Napoleon so remembered? Is it? Mm-hmm. I mean, is this is this another BlackBerry story where like a group of guys? built something they didn't entirely understand and that's why it completely fell apart on them mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting yeah. kind of looking at those two movies together i mean, difference in scale of course in different time periods and but you know they're, they're both kind of the same story you know what goes up must come down and it's yeah. you know usually when you as you're going up you don't think about what what's going to happen when it comes down and I, I think that's maybe another thing is like what was his end game like, you know, how do you go from uh, I'm standing up for this idea of republic, um, you know, watching, you know, society tear apart the the system that had held it up, you know, the royalty. And then you go from that to um, being a, a fighter for the republic. And then you go from that to being the emperor. You know, how does that happen? Yeah. Um, what's the psychology of that? And, you know. I, I don't know the movie really. I mean, and that could be one of those things in the four hour and 10 minute cut. It's, you know, we kind of get that more of that connective tissue, but there's so many times in this movie where we go from a scene and then it fades to white and then we're on to the next thing. Yeah. And that's kind of unfulfilling in a way. It is. And it, it'd be unfortunate if he needs to take four hours to do that. I know people are like, well, Napoleon had so many battles, such a, a long life such that or like i don't know how long his life but it's such a memorable mm. life that it's mm-hmm. going to take a while but i don't know if you necessarily need four hours to do that mm. um uh, but i did really like to me the movie's almost like a, a two-hander in a lot of way with vanessa kirby and joaquin mm-hmm. phoenix mm-hmm. and i liked i liked a lot of their scenes together and by the end i was starting to feel empathy um for uh, Napoleon and and for Josephine and their relationship, mm. um, and so it finally got to me. But for a while, it was like, what am I supposed to feel about these characters? Really, you know, like, and, and I thought Vanessa Kirby did a great job as Josephine, and and it made me think, like, what what's her relationship to Napoleon? Like, is this does she truly love him or is this out of convenience or does she grow to love him? It seems like maybe she grows to love him. Um, yeah. And, but early on, like what she can't bear children. So they're having a, 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 they get divorced and she goes to another residence, another really spectacular residence she lives in. Yeah. Seems, <laughs> it was the seems, world's greatest divorce settlement. Yeah. She seems, pr- she seems to me like she's pretty happy about it. Right. And yeah. then, he Joaquin Phoenix's Napoleon is just so insecure, right? So he's like, you got to write me tomorrow and then the next day and then the next day. And so that's interesting to see that, you know, that insecurity for someone who's considered this, um, this yeah. historical icon. But at the same time, 
like then then he does so well in the battles and it's like it's he seems so brilliant in areas and not in others and i know human beings can be like that but it just seems to me like it's two or three different movies in there um yeah the josephine stuff is really interesting because there's that scene after they run into each other a couple of times and um her lady in waiting says to her like you know it's like do you not see anything sort of worth you know attracting you in napoleon and you know josephine says no well he's not uh, this is me paraphrasing she basically says well he's not completely inoffensive (laughs) 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 and then and then she sends like she sends him like the like one of these like invitation cards like to come in and hang out and he he gets it and he smells it and then he rubs the card all over him like to put <laughs> yeah. it in her, it's um there's so many like little things like that there, there's this inference that you know he needed her more than she needed him yeah um like he had this like gross insecurity about her having you know lovers and other relationships almost from the beginning um but he, I mean, he also has this point of view, like, well, you're here to give me a child, you're here to give me a son, an heir, um, and then, you know, once he kind of gets that from this uh, this new arrangement, uh, I think an Archduchess of Austria, who he marries later, um, they kind of settle into this kind of more practical, or not practical, but like sort of this more psychological relationship where you know she's kind of there to reinforce. I don't know his 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 drive and his ambition. You know, he's continuously on a on a quest to try and impress her, um, knowing that that's kind of all they have. Um, she's you know it, she, she was uh, part of this aristocratic family who was locked up during the terror. Her, her first husband was murdered because he was an aristocrat. She was in jail, and you know she has this very sort of like dark line. Mm-hmm. Um, where she's talking about her experience in prison, where like she says, like somebody told me, like the best way for me to survive would be to get pregnant. So there's this kind of quiet intimation that you know she allowed herself to be sexually assaulted in the hopes that it might spare her life during this this awful period. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know there, there's there's so much going on there in terms of like what it is these two people want from each other and it seems like they're not even entirely sure and you know sometimes the relationship is playful sometimes it's just like the, these two just like horrible people who yeah. <laughs> you kind of maybe deserve each other but you know the in in, in the in the, uh, the basis of this romance they they end up like kind of essentially being responsible for terrible things happening to France and most of Europe, it's um I, I don't know if that was the takeaway that was intended, like horrible people doing horrible things in the name of of greatness. But you know, I think there there's part of that there. Um I worry that we're making like we're we're I I really enjoyed this movie. Oh, I did. Yeah, I think it's, it was a great, 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 great spectacle to it. It's spectacle, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like I, I saw it in 70 millimeter, which was cool on the big screen. Yeah, humble um, break. Yeah, yeah, humble break. But I'd say seeing it on the big screen is great. That's why if he does like a four-hour version, although yeah. you hope there's an intermission, it would be better on the big screen than I think watching on your TV. Especially if he adds even more battle scenes to it, right? Like, um, but I think he wanted to add more about the relationship Napoleon yeah. 
and Josephine, which well, to me, I maybe less and more more of the battles and more yeah. of the uh, more of the action in that regard because I thought that. Well, I think the action sells itself, but sort of what like kind of keeps you connected to the film between the action sequences is is what's going on between the characters. And you have characters in this who like come and go. Like what happened to Napoleon's brother? He was there and then he wasn't. It yeah. you know, there are so many, you know, relationships and you, you know, you have in a way this is a great callback to, you know, sort of historical epics of of old Hollywood, but you know, I think as as audience members, and you know, you're right too. I, I I know there's a lot of discourse right now, and certainly I've contributed to it about like runtimes and things. And you know, it's the old Roger Ebert line: uh, a good movie is never too long, and a bad movie is never too short. And I think you know, is Napoleon that case? And certainly one of the other things I'm thinking about is Kingdom of Heaven, which is one of those movies that Sir Ridley made. Um, that sort of got chop socky down to two and a half hours, and he releases like a nearly four hour cut, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, this is the better version." And yeah. so I wonder if that's like a, you know, sort of a, a predestination paradox of really Scott movies that you know the longer they are, the better they are. <laughs> yeah. At least when these, with at least so far as these epics are concerned, it, it could be. Um, on my butt test on the on the chair, <laughs> the theater. I felt it a few times during this one. So mm. I was entertained, but like Killers of a Flower Moon, um, yeah. even though the subject matter is pretty dismal, I yeah. did not feel it at all. It kind of yeah. rolled by. So I agree. I, I, I felt like with this one, it maybe it's kind of just the shifts in tone and that that kind of dragged in certain spots for me. So my, mm. my butt was feeling it there on the, on the chair <laughs> in the cinema. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely like, it's, it's a grand spectacle and yeah, if he does do it four hours, I think show it in the theater with an intermission would be great because, um, yeah, I was captivated by the, the Waterloo scene at the end too, that, that battle scene is really, really interesting to watch with the, you know, conflict coming from all sides and him delaying it delaying it because of the rain and yeah. unfortunately sort of i guess procrastinating his way into a, a tough battle there um, yeah i mean also by that point too i mean everyone you know you we, we know what waterloo is uh i mean it's kind of part of the vernacular when you you say you've reached your waterloo <laughs> you know yeah. everyone kind of knows what that means so why I'm, not cambridge i reached my cambridge yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, Bad joke. You, you'll well, cut that out in editing, right? Adam? No, that, there's definitely two or three people laughing about it right now. Okay. So it's, it's it, you know, I'm hearing chuckles from the McKinnon building as we speak. <laughs> okay. um, <laughs> we'll have to wrap up the show there. But uh, we hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to our show again, you can download it every Friday from our website, endcreditsradioshow.com. You can get it at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite app like Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And speaking of Spotify, that's where you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just search for End Credits on CFRU on your Spotify app. You can stay connected to us on social media, on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will return tomorrow at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. And in the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson. And there's also my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And Tim, where can people find you at your Waterloo? 
<laughs> yeah, my Waterloo, flashing the deadpan on social media. Um, yeah, I hope I don't have to fight my Waterloo soon. I hope that's not till yeah years from now. Yeah, there's no St. Helens where we're going anyway. Uh, stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We'll return, of course, next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of End Credits, and we will see you then. Bye.